One of the things that, that the book of Daniel has kept coming back to over and over and over again, if you've been following our sermon series called Dominion in the last few months, is that to choose to follow the Lord, to, to choose to follow Christ, is to sign up for an unrelenting life of opposition. That expectation is set before us. Unrelenting opposition. Why, why do I say that? Not, not periodic trouble, not occasional difficulty. Unrelenting opposition. That's, that's what you're choosing if you choose to follow Christ. Well, the reason I say that is because of what we learned a couple weeks ago in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel 10, the Lord reminded us, the Lord taught us that to live in this world is to live in the midst of a spiritual battlefield of cosmic proportions. Okay, so to review, on the one side, you have the kingdom of light that's ruled by God and upheld by all the angels who who advance his plan for the world. Okay, on the other side, you have the kingdom of darkness. Okay, that's ruled by Satan and his aims, his rebellious intentions are, are advanced by demonic powers in this world. Every one of us is born into this kingdom, kingdom of darkness. So what does the Lord do? What does the Lord do? Well, through the life, death, and, and resurrection of Christ, he delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom, as Paul said, of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we come to this cosmic battle knowing that we serve a God who is in the business of transferring those who are born in the kingdom of darkness all the way over into the kingdom of light. And that means, friend, that you can never do that for yourself. You can't. You you cannot take yourself and your sinful heart out of the kingdom of darkness and and relocate it like your own moving company into the kingdom of light. You You can't do that. Only Jesus can give you spiritual life. And Jesus is eager to give you spiritual life. If you will, confess your sin, believe that he died so you could be forgiven, cry cry out to him for a new heart that actually desires to obey him. You do that, he will always answer that prayer. Always. Okay? And he will transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And when that happens, a lot of people aren't happy. So people may be a little bit of a generous term, okay? Because neither the world, your flesh, nor the devil like that relocation. Okay? They don't like that. In fact, every fiber of their being actively opposes that decision. Not just the day you become a Christian, but every day you wake up and decide, today I'm going to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Every day they're opposed to that. So so you want to honor God with your sexuality, but surprise, surprise, you find it hard. Shocking. It's, It's hard to wait for God to provide a godly husband or wife with whom you can enjoy all the pleasure of physical intimacy. That's hard, okay? You know, you, you want to trust God to take care of your kids. 
But it's really hard. You know, it's hard when you reach that point as a parent where you recognize, I have absolutely no ultimate control over the choices they make. You know, you, you want to believe there's an end to, to things like racism or, or infidelity or, or emotional and physical suffering. But it's really hard. It just keeps going on and on and on. And before too long, you start thinking, does, does God see me? Does God care about me? I mean, based on what I'm experiencing, either God is all-powerful but not good, or God is good but not all-powerful, or maybe he's neither one. Daniel 10 warns us, it's a warning, That to follow Christ is to choose to sign up for a life of unrelenting opposition. And and Daniel 10 sets us on the right course for that life, as I preached two weeks ago, by leaving us undone by the glory of God and strengthened by the word of God. Okay? Then you get to Daniel 12, which we'll see next week. And in Daniel 12, the Lord comforts us with a promise that at the end, he's going to make all things new. And there will be no more sin and no more opposition to the choice to follow Christ with your life. But here's the challenge. You've got a Daniel 10 beginning, undone by the glory of God, strengthened by the word of God. Ready, team, team, go. You've got a Daniel 12 end. This is going to be crazy when you get here. And you have our life in the middle. I hope you feel that. Hope you feel that. And the more I studied Daniel 11 this week, I kept coming back to the fact that this chapter is all about life in the middle. Okay? Life in the middle where we're all too aware of opposition, where we're all too aware of the forces inside of us, forces around us that are, that are just constantly attacking, undermining, whittling away at our desire to cling to Christ. And I think that Daniel 11 has got to be one of the longest chapters in this book for the very reason that God knows the time in the middle is hard and long. And this chapter is all about life in the middle, specifically how we can remain faithful to God in the face of opposition. So look at verse 32. Look at verse 32. There is no way I can preach through this entire chapter verse by verse. So we're going to drop in at a couple places, and verse 32 is one of the most important. I think if we can understand this verse, you go home understanding this verse, you've got Daniel 11. And arguably, we could say, you've got the book of Daniel. Okay, so look at verse 32. The the context here, verse 32, is a prophecy about the evil activity of a Greek king named Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes. And we're going to look more closely at him later on. But what I want us to recognize right now as we look at verse 32 is that his actions here are representative, they're illustrative of what every power of evil spiritual opposition, the world, the flesh, the devil, is constantly trying to do in your life the moment you choose to follow Christ. Okay, so so Antiochus is the case study, but he represents 
every power of evil spiritual opposition in this world that works against our decision to follow Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. So look at verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Okay, there's a contrast here. I hope you picked up on that. All right, there's a critical contrast. There's two kinds of people in view. So let's talk about the first kind. The first kind of person, they experience that spiritual opposition, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they're seduced by flattery. Well, what's flattery? Okay, well, it's a lie intended to make you or someone else feel good about yourself, right? I mean, sometimes we use it in a positive sense, like the husband, you know, flattered his wife by complimenting her on her new jewelry or or something like that. But, But it's not used in a positive way in verse 32. Okay, there is a seductive, deceitful intent here. The, The goal of this evil power is to tell the people of God a lie intended to make them feel good about themselves, follow me, and in so doing, manipulate them into violating their covenant with God. That's what's happening here. And I hope that sounds familiar if you've been a Christian for some time. Because I would argue that what we have here, church, is another reminder that at the root of all idolatry, all sin, you will always find two lies. Two lies. First, a lie about who we are. And second, a lie about who God is. Okay, at the root of every sin, every idolatry, every violation of the covenant of God, there is always two lies. A lie about yourself, who you are, and a lie about God, who he is. Okay, so so let me give you an example. When we reject God's moral instruction about sexual purity and do whatever feels good to us, what are we saying? What are we saying? Number one, I'm an autonomous human being. Number two, I have an inalienable right to sexual satisfaction whenever I want it, however I want it. Number three, whenever I'm feeling bad, whenever I'm experiencing the stress of life in a broken world, what I need the most is sex. Every one of those statements is a lie. Every one of them. Okay, listen, God God didn't create you first and foremost for sex. He created you for his glory. Right? Which is another way of saying he created you for himself. Okay, No matter what you saw on the Super Bowl halftime show, the greatest pleasures in this world are not the pleasures of sex. It's the pleasure of knowing God. Okay, And think about it. Behind every one of those lies about who we are is a corresponding lie about who God is. Okay, so let's go back to the illustration. Number one, I'm an autonomous human being. What's the implicit lie about God? God's not in charge. Okay? Number two, think about it. Number two, second lie. I have an inalienable right to sexual satisfaction. What's the the implicit lie about God? God is never allowed to tell me no or wait when it comes to sexual pleasure. 
Okay, number three, what's the third lie about ourselves? All right, whenever I'm feeling bad, what I need the most is sex. What's, what's the implicit lie about God in that? Well, it's quite simply that, that the comfort, the, the help, the satisfaction that God offers is inferior to what sex offers. That's the lie. Okay? Lies about ourselves and lies about God. I, I could give a thousand examples, but I hope that's clear. Lies about ourselves, lies about God, they always go hand in hand. They always work together, which simply reflects the fact, please hear this, that you cannot separate your doctrine of man, who you believe we are, from your doctrine of God, who you believe he is. You, you can't separate those things. You, you can try but you ultimately can't. Why not? Because to know the creator for who he is, is to know his image bearers for who they are. The doctrine of creation binds the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man together. And in the face of spiritual opposition and temptation to sin, back to verse 32, this person, these people, the first kind of person here, they believe a lie about themselves. Flattery which is ultimately a lie about God. Whenever somebody is seduced through flattery, believing a lie about themselves, there is always in the background a corresponding lie about God. Always. And believing those lies leads them to violate their covenant with their creator. That's the first kind of person, verse 32. But, But there's the second kind. Look at the second half of that sentence. The second kind of person hears, remember we're talking about spiritual opposition that's inevitable if you've decided to follow Christ. They hear the seductive voice of flattery. They they sense that internal temptation to break their covenant with God, but they refuse to give in. What do they do? They stand firm and take action. Okay, They, They don't give in to temptation. They sense it, they hear it, they feel it, but they don't give in. They don't give in and they keep running down the road of holiness, standing firm and taking action. Okay? Question, what is it that sets apart the first person who is seduced by lies about God, lies about themselves, from the second person who stands firm, takes action, and keeps running down that road of holiness no matter the opposition? What's very simple. The second person They know they're God. That's the only difference. The second person knows they're God. There there is, think of it this way, there is an inseparable relationship between a biblical response to suffering and a biblical doctrine of God. There always is. You can't separate your life from your doctrine. That the way you choose to live is an infallible mirror of what you really believe about God. And what you really believe. I'm not talking about what you said you believed when you got asked a question. What you really believe about God is always, inevitably, reflected in the way you choose to live. Only those, please hear this church, only those 
who know their God for who he really is can stand firm and take action when oppression and suffering come knocking on their door. Only those who know God for who he really is. And notice that he doesn't say those who know about God or those who heard some things about him. No, it's very personal. It's it's not abstract. Those who know their God, but it's not just personal. It's also very specific. Okay, why why do I say that? I look at verse 32, Matthew. It just seems like they know their God. Well, Well, the screaming question is, what? They know God. What do they know about God? Can you tell me that, Daniel? I mean, if this is the key, knowing God, in the face of all spiritual opposition, standing firm, taking action, running after holiness, what is it I need to know? Well, there are 45 verses to help us with that, okay? So everything that comes before Daniel 11.32 and after Daniel 11.32 is like a card catalog of evidence proving two truths about God that we have got to know if we are going to stand firm and take action in the face of all spiritual opposition. Okay, that's what's going on here. Verse 32 is the key. Everything else is supporting evidence. All right? So, I'd summarize Daniel 11 this way. Then we'll dive into these two truths about who God is. Summarize it this way, okay? If you want to remain faithful to God in the face of significant opposition, then you, friend, must learn to know God as the one who reigns over all things and the one who redeems all things. That's it. That's the answer. What is it about God that I need to know here, Daniel? Two things. Two things. You have to know that God, your God, that he reigns over all things, that he redeems all things. Okay, so point number one, God reigns. God reigns. Or you, perhaps you could say it this way. God reigns. That means he knows the future because he controls the future. Okay? So in Daniel 11, what do we have? Well, we've got, we've got an angel who began speaking back in Daniel 10 to Daniel, giving him this vision that reveals in crazy detail what's going to go down in the kingdom of Medo-Persia, and then in the kingdom of Greece for the next 400 years. Feel the weight of that, okay? And the angel tells Daniel that he should expect at least four more kings in Persia after Darius the Mede, which, which in case you're thinking back to the beginning of chapter 10, thinking, I thought we were talking about a vision Daniel got during the reign of Cyrus of Persia. Good question. Actually, some scholars believe that Cyrus of Persia and Darius the Mede are two titles for the same person because he ruled over the Medo-Persian Empire. So don't get thrown by that, okay? But he's receiving this vision that's talking about the next 400 years of history. And he promises Daniel, this angel, that the fourth king of Persia, who happens to be Xerxes, all right, would stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. That's in verse 2. What do we know about Xerxes? 
Well, we know that Xerxes invaded Greece, and he was defeated at the Battle of Salamis in 480 B.C. Then from verses 4 to 35, Daniel gives a play-by-play preview of the next 200 years of Greek history. Okay, now, before we jump into a little bit of this, you need to recognize something, okay? Why, I love why questions, why would Daniel take so many verses to go into great detail about the Greek empire from more or less the rise of Alexander the Great in 336 BC until the death of Antiochus IV in 163 BC, roughly 200 years, why would Daniel go into crazy detail, which makes for really long scripture readings, about that 200-year period in advance as a prophecy? Why, Why would he do that? Well, I would argue it's because for the Jewish exiles, God wanted to prove to them that the suffering they were about to experience was not an accident. That's what he wanted to do. Their their future would be difficult, but he wanted them to know that no matter what happened or how bad it got, they could rest in knowing that God was in control. That's what he's up to, okay? And, And here, this is amazing. Here's where we have a crazy advantage over the original recipients of this book. You know what it's called? Hindsight. Hindsight, right? This pastor is praising God for hindsight and that I'm not getting this and two weeks later, Daniel says, hey, hey, you preached from Daniel 11, just wrote it. Ah, you know, we have hindsight. And so we can look back here and we can compare these prophecies from 537 BC. Okay, don't lose sight. He's prophesying 200 years in advance of the 200 year time period. We can compare what Daniel 11 tells us would happen with what we know from other historical accounts of Greek history. And this is what's crazy. Daniel 11 is dead on. Dead on. Okay? So I don't have time to work through all this. If you'd like to, grab a study Bible. Have at it. But I want to give you a little example, a little taste. Okay, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. The angel says what? Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Remember, all this is proving that God reigns. And as soon as he has arisen, this mighty king, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. All right, Greek historians. Who's he talking about? Yes, yes, I heard the mumblings. Yeah, Alexander the Great, right? Right, and when Alexander the Great died, when he died, 323 BC, he had no biological heir, no posterity. So his kingdom was divided among four generals. And the rest of Daniel 11 focuses on two of them, okay? The kingdom of the Ptolemies in Egypt, that's the south in relation to Israel, and the kingdom of the north, the Seleucids, which are kind of in Syria and and Babylonia. So the rest of the vision from this point on seems to be limited to what was happening in those two kingdoms because the nation of Israel was stuck in the middle, (laughs) 
okay? And what was going on between the Seleucids above them and the Ptolemies beneath them often tended to collide and create troubles where? In Israel. So the king of the south, look at verse 5, is Ptolemy the first Soter who temporarily, just a little history here, he temporarily sheltered the king of the north, Seleucus I, when one of the other generals of Alexander forced Seleucus, king of the north, to flee Babylon in 316 BC. And so after serving Ptolemy I as quote, one of his princes for several years, Seleucus I returns to Babylon. He takes back his former authority and he proceeds to expand his influence throughout Babylonia, Syria, and Media to the point where his kingdom was historically much stronger than Ptolemy's. Surprise, surprise. Okay. And the Ptolemaic and Seleucid kingdoms, they experienced regular conflict until 250 BC, when Ptolemy II tried to make peace with Antiochus II up north by giving Antiochus his daughter Berenice as a wife. Now here's where it starts to feel like a soap opera, okay? Antiochus was going to divorce his first wife, Laodis, so he could marry Berenice. But Laodis poisoned both Antiochus II and Berenice. And later that year, Berenice's father, Ptolemy II, down in Egypt, also happened to die. Now we laugh, but look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. After some years, they shall make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. That's a nice way of saying you got killed. And he and his arm shall not endure. That's right, because his first wife poisoned him. But she shall be given up, she got poisoned, and her attendants, he who fathered her, her dad died in Egypt, and he who supported her in those times. I mean, that, that's amazing. studying this chapter this week, I, I just had these moments where I've got commentaries, I've got my Bible, history books, and I just sit up and think, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, God? You really knew all of that. It's just amazing, but, but we're not quite done, okay? I want you to feel the force of this. When, when Ptolemy II died in Egypt, Berenice's brother, so Papa continues, Ptolemy III becomes king. Well, he's ticked off because the northern king took out his sister. So he proceeds to invade the Seleucid kingdom, the kingdom of the north, to punish them for killing his sister. And he actually conquers the capital of Antioch in Syria. Now look at verse 7. And from a branch from her roots, speaking of Berenices, one shall arise in his place. It's her brother. Same parents. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. Exactly. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. Prevail he did. Okay, so historical records indicate that when, when Ptolemy III left Antioch, he took statues of gold, gold and silver vessels, and all these other idols that the northern king had originally taken away from Egypt. And then he makes a peace treaty with the king of the north, Seleucus II. Now look at verse 8. 
he, southern king, shall also carry off to Egypt their gods. <laughs> he did. With their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Exactly. He made a peace treaty. Okay? I, 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 I could just keep right on going. Okay, but I'm not, because I want to bring application. <laughs> All right? But, but suffice it to see this. There is nothing generic or general about these prophecies. Nothing, okay? It's, it's not like God said, hey, well, you know, this will be a fast one. So, in the future, there's going to be different kingdoms, you know, and, and they won't like each other, and they'll fight a lot. Well, yeah, a betting man could put all his retirement on that. I mean, that's been the history of the world from day one, right? You know, surprise, I know the future. No, it's so specific, it's so specific, it's unbelievably detailed and accurate, and even if you don't believe the Bible and you're listening to me, go read the historical record that you do believe. It lines up. So if you're not a Christian and you think the Bible is nothing more than the history of religions, you need to deal with this. Okay? You have to deal with a book that claims in no uncertain terms to be inspired by God and makes prophecies of secular history 400 years in advance and gets them entirely right. If you have any intellectual integrity and want to maintain your supposed doubt of the reality of God, you have to deal with this. You need to feel the weight of that. Don't, don't ignore what is historically verifiable and slow down and consider that perhaps there are better reasons for faith than doubt. Okay? But if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian and you believe that the Bible is true, then, then know this. To read Daniel 11 is to be confronted with one of the most important realities in the entire universe. Namely, God reigns. God reigns. And he knows the future because he controls the future. That, that's really important. That's the connection. When we say he reigns, we're not just saying he's, he's sitting up on heaven and he's got his foot on the earth. No. He, he knows the future because he controls the future. God doesn't have some sort of freakish ability to see it all coming and take a pretty good guess. Okay, no. The point of Daniel 11 is that the only way that God could know the future to that level of detail is if God controls the future to that level of detail. Okay? That the fulfilled prophecies here, they don't, they don't just confront us with divine foreknowledge. They comfort us with divine sovereignty. We don't just have divine foreknowledge. We have, we have the comfort of divine sovereignty. I hope you noticed, as, as Katie was reading in here, how many passive verbs there are in this chapter. What, what do I mean by passive verb? Well, well verse 4, his kingdom shall be broken and divided. Verse 6, she shall be given up. Verse 11, it shall be given into his hand. Verse 20, he shall be broken. Who's doing all the bees? God is. Okay, God is. God's ruling. God's reigning. He's, he's raising up one king and 
putting down another. And he's not just controlling the general flow of history. You know, well, my job is to make sure that generally speaking, the Persians follow the Babylonians and the Greeks follow the Persians. And yeah, I I pretty much tap out at 50,000 feet. No, no, okay? It's detailed. It's it's so specific that down to the level of, of marriage alliances and biological heirs and, and, and the exact sequence of military victories and defeats. I mean, you read that and, and that confronts us with something, friend. That confronts you with the fact that God's control over the future of your life is not one bit less precise. Not one bit. Nothing's too hard for him. More more importantly, nothing escapes his sovereign hand. It's it's not as though God could get involved at any point in your life, but he only jumps in at a few critical junctures. No, he's he's always in control. Every detail, every situation, your your good days, your bad days, he's taking all of that and making sure that it all moves forward unstoppably such that he is glorified and what's good for you goes down. That's what God's doing. That's the comfort of divine sovereignty. And and that's why God's worthy of our trust, right? Because knowing he reigns, it's the first thing we have to know about God. We're going to stand firm in the face of opposition, within and without. We have to know he reigns. Knowing he reigns enables us to stand firm and follow him, even in the face of crazy evil, unspeakable evil, coming at us. Okay, so look at verse 21. Verse 21, there's a shift here from this conflict between the north and the south, Seleucus to Ptolemies, to focus on a particular king of the north. Verse 21, the wicked Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes. I told you we would see him earlier, okay? He ruled from 175 to 163 BC. And he, verse 21, is the contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. You know what Antiochus did? He wasn't the heir. He seized the throne by buying off people and flattering them. That's what he did. He stole the kingdom. And we've actually seen him before. Okay, Antiochus is the little horn of the third kingdom back in chapter 8. And attention shifts to him again in chapter 11 because he, in so many ways, he typifies the evil powers of this world and how they are always oppressing God's people. So this is really important. Antiochus is an installment in a larger pattern that actually culminates at the end of chapter 11 with descriptions of evil oppression that more closely resemble what the New Testament leads us to believe about the Antichrist than they actually do about what we know of Antiochus. What's going on? Was God confused about what the Antichrist, the final ruler of evil who at the end of the age will be killed when the Lord returns. Was, was he confused about him and Antiochus? They, they, oh, they just, it, the picture's getting blurry. No. No, the point is that many of the same things Antiochus did are also many of the same things that the Antichrist will do. 
And it's all part of this larger pattern of the way that evil rulers and people oppress the people of God. They're blended together for a reason, okay? So, so few kings exceeded Antiochus, this is what you need to know, in doing violence to the people of God. So in 169 BC, this guy sacked Jerusalem on his way home from Egypt. He desecrated the temple. He killed 80,000 Jewish men, women, and children, and he inspired the Maccabean revolt, if you know Jewish history, which is exactly what we see in verse 28. He shall return to his land with great wealth. He sacked Egypt, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. That's Israel. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. Notice that phrase, work his will. You know what that tells you? That the Bible is brutally honest about the reality of evil. Brutally honest, okay? The Bible never minimizes the reality of evil in an effort to magnify the sovereignty of God. Let's sort of hide that so God looks big. Never does that. Antiochus did as he wills. And yet, time after time, including Daniel 11, Scripture locates at places even the most wicked, oppressive actions of evil men squarely under the sovereignty of God. Over and over and over again. Okay, the, the perspective in verse 36, look there, of Antiochus' wickedness, that holds true for every enemy who's ever been opposed to the Lord, period. Look at verse 36. And the king, Antiochus, shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper until the end of nation is accomplished. Note, for what is decreed shall be done. Whose decree is in view there? Not Antiochus, okay? It's God's. What the angel's assuring Daniel that, that even when it seems like Antiochus's will is prevailing and inflicting these horrible forms of oppression on the people of God, ultimately Antiochus himself answers to a higher power and can only do what God himself allows him to do. When the indignation is accomplished, Antiochus, you too are coming to an end. And your oppression is not going to last a single day longer than God decrees it will. You feel the force of that. You know, so often, I think we, we look at evil in our world, in Daniel's day, our own day, and, and we see evil and we say, God can't be in control. Well, Daniel 11 asserts the exact opposite. God reigns. God reigns. God knows the future because he controls the future. And he's worthy of our trust. But I can almost hear the question, Matthew, how in the world can you say that? Because all I see in verse 36 is that what is decreed shall be done. How do I know that's good? You tracking? How do I know that God isn't just, oh yeah, he's in charge, but who knows if what he's decreed is going to be good for me. I get he has a sovereign plan, but how do I know that that's worthy of my trust when it doesn't make any sense? 
Well, Daniel 11 has an answer for that question too. It's found in verse 35, okay? This is our second and final point. We need to not just learn to know God as the one who reigns, but to know God as the one who redeems. Look at verse 35. And some of the wise people of God facing all this oppression, some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white. Some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. You need to know that the stumbling in view here is tremendously painful. Okay? This is an experience defined in verse 33 as suffering by sword and flame, captivity and plunder. That's painful. And verse 34 even adds, look at verse 34, that the oppression they experience on account of choosing to, to walk in wisdom, to obey God's commands, that that's going to be accompanied by an acute sense of loneliness and isolation. Quote, when they stumble, they shall receive little help. And those who do offer to help them in their suffering will do so with dishonest intent. Quote, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. So you've got suffering here that's, that's tremendously painful. And it came to pass in a pronounced way during both the persecutions that Antiochus inflicted and the subsequent Maccabean revolt in which thousands of Jews died for refusing to compromise in their worship of God. But, but just like Antiochus's evil actions pointed to this larger pattern, friends, so too Israel's experience of suffering points to a larger pattern. A pattern of pain and hardship and isolation on the path of following Jesus. And you may be sitting there thinking, I am so grateful as a Christian in America, that I will never experience, we shouldn't say never, physical death on the account of state-sponsored persecution. But friend, there is still a death that you die. A suffering that we experience whenever we choose to resist the lure of the world, the flesh, and the devil. There is a death not physical, spiritual. A real death that we die when we die to instant gratification. When, when we die to winning every argument. When we die to the approval of man. When, when, when we die to storing up treasures on earth. Okay? To choose to follow Jesus is to sign up for a lifelong crucifixion of all your sinful desires. That's hard. Really hard. Really painful. But, but whether your oppression, please hear this, is physical or spiritual, the promise of verse 35 stands firm. Look at that. Your suffering is not meaningless. Okay? It's not pointless. Your God is even now using your suffering in your life to purify your soul for him. He did that for Israel. He's doing that. He's doing that with us, okay? He's purifying your soul until the day you see him face to face. You may never understand why it's happening this way. 
You may never understand how God is purifying you. But I would simply say that though Job never knew the whole story, in his suffering, he certainly came to know God. Okay? That the Lord is eager to do that for you today. He's eager through your own experience of suffering to teach you who he is. So, if you are willing to stop demanding an explanation, to let go of bitterness, to lay down the sword of vengeance in your suffering, God will give you the most precious gift of all. He'll give you more of himself. That's what he'll do, okay? Because because there are heights and depths to the radiance of God's glory that you can only see on the road of suffering. That's true. And so whether your time on that road feels short or long, friend, know this, know this. God doesn't just reign over those experiences. He redeems those experiences for your good. James 1, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's the point of Daniel 11? Okay? A biblical response to suffering requires a biblical doctrine of God. More specifically, if you want to remain faithful to God in the face of opposition within and without, then you have to learn to know God as the one who reigns over all things and the one who redeems all things. That's what's necessary. That's the warning. That's that's the encouragement. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Church, I exhort you today, if you are in the midst of significant suffering, experiencing that opposition, know this. You need to spend time with your Bible, allowing the word of God to wash over you with testimony after testimony that God reigns and God redeems. God reigns and God redeems. It's loaded for bear with that. And if you're sitting there thinking, thanks for the tips, Matthew, but my life is pretty easy right now, then I warn you, you need to get ready. Because two years ago, I didn't know my world was going to fall apart. And the two things that kept me were rock-solid assurance from years meditating on this word that God reigns, God redeems. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, boy, we need your help. We need your help because so often in our suffering and oppression, the last thing we want is to think. We don't even want to feel anymore. We just want it to all go away. You get that. You walked this life. You suffered with us. 
And I pray, Father, that you would use this word as it's been preached and this word as it is now celebrated in the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, to wash over us with a fresh assurance today that you are the God who reigns and you are the God who redeems. Do that for your glory. Amen.